If anything ever happens to you, God forbid, I promise you that uh, that I'll give Diana a million dollars. Who are the connections, the people that matter the most to you? Everybody's famous today, you know, whether you're a sportsman or a reality star or whether you happen to be a politician. Hey there, I'm Mark Fennell and this is Hey, Guess What? A podcast all about the biggest moments in your life. And crucially, the people that you wanted to share those moments with. Today, someone who has been connecting with Australians through our TV screens for over 50 years. And look, TV itself has changed a lot over the years, but once upon a time, there was just one screen in the house, that central point for entertainment and information in the home. And the stars of that box, the people we invited into our houses through that screen, they were so entrenched in Australian culture that they really only needed one name, Graham. Bert, Yana, and Ray. Ray Martin is a five-time Gold Logie winner. He's been part of iconic shows like 60 Minutes, Midday, A Current Affair, hell, even Carols by Candlelight. He has been there for the Olympics, the bicentenary, so many elections, world-changing moments like the aftermath of the September 11 terrorist attacks, It's a legacy in broadcasting that will probably never be matched. But to him, he's just Di's husband, a dedicated granddad to Arlo, and a dude who likes to dabble in a bit of photography. But he is a journalist. That is who he is at his heart. It is a profession, it is a job, a vocation, yes. But it's what makes him connect to people. Yeah, I fill out the form on my um, passport saying journalist. This is occupation. I tell people, uh, call me a journalist. I call myself a journalist. Um, I always enjoyed telling stories rather than uh, breaking news as much as I love breaking news, but I'm a, I am tell stories and that's what journalists do. Mm. It's funny, looking back over your interviews, what I note, I guess, is that, and again, feel free to just correct me if I get this wrong, but it seems like for you in large part, journalism is a means to connecting with people. Because it seems like that's something that you seem to extract an enormous amount of joy out of understanding people, what makes them tick. Yeah, you've got to, at some stage, if you reach my ripe, ripe old age, you, um, you've got to come to terms with yourself, what you can do, what you can't do. I can talk to people, I enjoy people, I talk to people on buses, I connect with people on aeroplanes, I talk to people, where, not just in Australia, where they might know who I am, uh, but anywhere I go. And invariably, I'm called Mr. Have a Chat. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I do connect. And uh, at the end, end of an interview with Joe Cocker or with... Um, a prime minister or whomever it might be or someone who's difficult, um, people say, gee, you got him on a good day. And I said, no, no, I didn't. I connected. Actually, uh, you know, worked hard at this. I did my homework and I and I respected his position or her position and uh, and worked at that. So I think that's part of the strategy in terms of connecting. But I think overall I'm, um, uh, I don't have any trouble uh, people talking to me seriously in the same sense I have good fun in a recent ABC comedy series I did. Um, that was good fun as well. So it's, I think you've got to be, you know, a man for all seasons. It was brilliant, and let me just say that to your face. I thought it was fantastic and well, the, wildly strange. It, it, was, it, well, it was wildly strange. I agree. And, uh, <laughs> and the first program, I walked out. My wife had been looking at it in another room, and I uh, walked out, and she said, "What was that?" And, uh, and <laughs> I, I said, "The same thing." I said, "I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that was." But um, you know, again, working with people who were 25 to 35 and who were um, very funny, but also very smart, um, was a joy. So much of this show is built around the notion that there are defining moments that change people's life. And I feel like you're one of these people for whom there's probably like a dozen to choose from. 
But if you had to pick a defining moment, a moment where a profoundly different ray went in and then came out the other end, is there a moment that springs to mind? Oh, yes. I, I was driving past down William Street the other day and, um, and I went in there back in 1965. I went in there for an interview for what was called the ABC Talks Department. The Talks Department is, I guess, the current affairs department now, but I saw this job for a, uh, for a talks officer grade one in the ABC and it involved interviewing people and involved travel and involved uh, news stories and I thought, that sounds interesting without knowing much about it. And I went along and I was um, uh, sat down in, a, in an office and I did an uh, interview with two of the senior men at the ABC at the time and I had to go up the road and, and do uh, read a news bulletin just to read for them, uh, put it down on tape and uh, do a quick interview with someone up there. And mm. I read the news bulletin and I stuffed it up and uh, and I, I stumbled a couple of times. And I said to the guy who was a you know a, a more senior talks officer than I was about to become, um, I said, "Can I do that again?" And he, out of the goodness generosity of his heart, he said, "Yeah, why not?" It probably saved my life. Yeah, and uh, wow. I did it a second time. I don't think it was very good the second time either. But for some reason, um, they used to select two cadets a year in the ABC, and, and I I was subsequently told that there were about four hundred and eighty applicants that year. Why I got the job, I don't know. But that changed my life totally. Otherwise. Today I would have been a retired history lecturer probably and I would have loved it and I would have been pretty good at it um, because I love history but um, but I wouldn't have seen the world and other things I've done. It was, and that was just a, a, a moment uh, I was going past with my wife the other day, as I said, and, and I looked at it and thought, wow, if they had not liked the colour of my shirt or not liked the, uh, the news mm. bulletin that I read, I would have happily gone off and, you know, bought a Citroen and, uh, <laughs> and, and been an academic. Not Citroen, right, come on. And been an academic. <laughs> Got driven around there somewhere on that. So after that interview, who was the first person you called? Who was the first person you told about? It? My mum. Yeah. Um, she um, she left school when she was thirteen, and uh, she was uneducated, and yet you know one of the smarter people in, I'd ever met more in my life. Um, and uh, and she, for some reason, wanted me to go to university. A, a kid coming out of working class Australia, a boy should have really gone to tech. I should have done that, but she, for some reason, wanted me to go to university. And uh, when we were living together in Tasmania. Um, um, uh, she, at one stage, I wanted to leave school early, leave high school to go and get a job and get some money because it was just she was working at a, as a machinist in a, a knitting factory and uh, just the two of us. And um, she didn't talk to me for three days when I suggested that I would give up school and, uh, and, and go and get a job. And she said, basically, you know, I haven't sort of worked my fingers to the bone for you to throw away <laughs> an opportunity. So when your mother doesn't talk to you for three days, you uh, you do what you're told. And uh, so I went back to school. And it was, and for some reason, she wanted me to do this. So she sort of thought I could do anything, uh, even though she had done nothing apart from, you know, be a, the best mother in the world. Um, but um, that that's the sort of, I think that's the encouragement and that's the sort of foundation that we all should be lucky enough to have. Listening to you talk, I'm reminded of the fact that I, I quit university after three months to take a job in television. And my mum, who is the first of her generation coming from India and Singapore, to have gotten into university. It was about three days before I could finally convince her that it was a good life choice. (laughs) You've mentioned your your working class upbringing and I think it's one of those things that perhaps people don't know nearly as well as they should, that your background actually was pretty rough in the early days. Uh, You've got three older sisters. uh, You 
ended up having a... Your relationship with your dad was pretty rough in the early days, from what I understand. He was quite violent, to the, only to the extent that you're happy to share. Can yeah, no, I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy to... Uh, I'm completely innocent. I was the child of this marriage, and so, uh, you know, I, I know Roland. But, um, no, he wasn't violent to me or my sisters. Um, he was... Uh, started to get violent towards my mother towards the end of their relationship before she and I fled. Um, and But he was... Uh, alcohol would, would be the trigger... Um, and that was a time when we fled, literally fled, um, uh, and went to Tasmania um, so she could be as far away from him as possible um, because he'd threatened to kill her. Um, uh, in those days, there was no support system, which, remember, um, would look after um, abandoned women or women who, you know, decided to run from a, a domestic violence situation. And so it was incredibly brave. Most women put up with it and, uh, and in many cases got bashed or died. And, uh, and mum decided she'd had enough. And so that wasn't the case. But um, so she, to go away as a single woman with a... Uh, I was 11 at the time when we left, um, was, was a tough gig. And, uh, and she, you know, to put me through school and put me through uh, all those sorts of things she did was uh, remarkable. But as I say, she, she wouldn't have cared at the end if I was a, a, a garbage man as long as I was sort of having a go and doing my best at what I could do. So if you've got to trust anyone, it's the dog and your mother. I think that's who you trust. <laughs> as a kid, literally fleeing, how much of that was explained to you? How, how aware of the circumstance were you? Oh, no, very aware. At 11, you can't physically stop your father from, he was much bigger than I was, uh, from, uh, you know, bashing my mother, which he did only, uh, so when he was drunk, which became an increasing problem. Um, but um, so I knew we had to go, and, uh, and yet uh, we'd been to a magistrate in, in the year or so beforehand when mum first sort of charged with domestic violence, and the magistrate said, you know, do you want to go with your mother or your father if there is a split? And I said, I want to go with both. And as an 11-year-old child, you do that. And this is also how you got your surname, isn't it? Because initially you were Raymond Grace. Yep. Do you know how your mum decided on Ray Martin? Yeah, no, I do. Well, it's family folklore, but um, we were we left one night. Dad was a travelling salesman at that stage, and he was going away for um, a week, and that was the time that Mum decided she was going. And um, and so we went to Sydney as a central station, and uh, and we had to get tickets to Adelaide. We were going to Mum had a relative in Adelaide we were going to visit, and um, and we're at the station. You had to fill out a form uh, for the uh, for the tickets, and uh, and so Mum feared that if she put Grace down there that, uh, in fact, uh, Dad might get a, a private detective and they'd find who was. So she had to have another name and uh, nearby was it was a name Martin, which we think was a real estate office, my elder <laughs> sister who was there at the time. And so just put Martin down, it doesn't matter. Wow, and so, so Mar- there's no, like, family, it was literally no, just picked out of the air. No, it was just picked out of somewhere at Central Station there was Martin and that was really just going to be a, a nom de plume for the moment. And, um, <laughs> and stuck. Yeah, stuck and, it, and I can't imagine being anyone else now. Central Station has an interesting role in your history. Uh, when things <laughs> got a bit rough, I understand there was a few nights you ended up as a family sleeping in yeah, we did. Well, again, it's hard to believe, but um, I never in my life thought I was I was underprivileged. I never thought I was mm. poor. And yet, uh, as we moved around from town to town, I was in 13 different uh, towns um, uh, where Dad was changing jobs um, until I went to high school. So we stayed in various, you know, a church up in Scone. Um, we, we, you know, Mum was cooking on an open 
campfire outside this church where we were sleeping. We stayed in a, a one-bedroom policeman's place up in the Snowy Mountains up in Yurangabilly, uh, which again was, you know, just a large room and a one-bedroom uh, in there that was all a tiny uh, policeman's um, quarters, um, et cetera, et cetera. So when we came back to Sydney, um, my next sister and I and my mum and dad uh, were sharing one bed in the in the Salvation Army uh, place. And so, but we, we were there for probably three or four weeks and uh, and we each day would go down the, mum would take us down the housing mission office and we'd sit there, my three sisters and I, and we'd be all scrubbed up. Anyway, as part of this uh, uh, a sort of strategy was worked between my mother and one of the, the clerks down at the housing mission office. And so um, they said we should go and do something drastic like sleep on Central Station. So um, my mum, my next sister and I went down to Central with our suitcases and uh, and we put two of the benches up together, the bench seats up together, and we slept there the first night. And um, and we went back the next day and uh, to the housing commission office and then back the next night when the police came along. I remember quite distinctly. Yeah. And um, I was about eight. And uh, they came along and asked what we were doing there and uh, we said we had nowhere to live and nowhere to sleep. And uh, so they put us in the, uh, the police car and took us down to the uh, housing commission office and walked upstairs and said, you know, we need to get these people some housing. And so we ended up on those Nissan huts out at a place near Liverpool, which is called Hargrave Park. And we just lived in a Nissan hut. Down one end, there was, um, uh, it had uh, two bedrooms uh, and a, a chip heater and, uh, and a little bit of a, a, a few, a few metres of garden out the front. And that was, we suddenly got to heaven. It was, a, it was a fair dickum house. And so that was, that was the story. But we, we, two days on, on Central Station, every time I go past Central Station, I, I don't quite know where we were sleeping, but that's where we were for two nights. Ray is a pretty open book, which I suspect is why he has been so successful to some degree. In fact, when he gets critical letters from people saying that he wouldn't understand their hardships, he often reflects that if they only knew these sorts of stories, the ones you're hearing now. From his unusual life growing up, Ray found himself with a place at the ABC at the age of 19. He married his wife, Diane, at 23, and then by the extremely young age of 24, he was sent to the US as a correspondent. But nobody was enjoying his rise more than his mum, Mary. I interviewed uh, Audrey Hepburn, um, and uh, and Mum was beside herself. Mum couldn't believe. Uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn was a character from the Women's Weekly that my mother had seen. So her son to be I- interviewing this this uh, goddess uh, was extraordinary. So generally, Mum was extremely proud. Mm. It also speaks a little bit to how fame has changed a great deal. The characters of that time, people like Audrey Hepburn, had a had an aura around them that that famous people today. I'm not going to say it's less than, but it's certainly different. The accessibility of it is, is different as well. A character like Audrey Hepburn would have occupied a different position in, in people's imagination at that point. Yeah, no question, no question. Audrey Hepburn was a different kettle of fish to, you know, famous people in Australia today. Um, and that's why my mum was so in awe of her. But, but similarly, without social media, without the, the sort of media we have today, um, you only got the information from newspapers or from magazines, um, uh, maybe radio, and of course then along came television, which, uh, which made everyone famous. As I say, because fame is so omnipresent now, there are so many famous people. It's um, it's no big deal. But um, but certainly um, for someone like Don Bradman, mm. um, you know, his son changed his name um, in Adelaide because it was too tough being the son of Sir Donald Bradman. So I think fame can be uh, you know just a terrible uh, uh, agony. Um, if you like, and uh, and people who don't live with them. My wife, for example, would only allow um, one photograph a year 
at the time that I was a Channel Island of, of her. She would say, well, you know, you decide, let them decide where they want it, but I'm only doing one a year um, because, <laughs> you know, she didn't want, uh, she wasn't part of uh, of some contract with Channel Island. She was her own person and is her own person. And so in that sense, she didn't want um, the sort of baggage that came with fame, so to speak. But Ray did become famous. Very, very, very famous. One day Ray got a phone call. It was from Channel 9. And it was to work on a brand new show called 60 Minutes. And from then on, every Sunday night, along with George Negus and Ian Leslie, Ray Martin reported from around the globe on the issues, the people and the places that mattered. For a journalist, that job is like a passport to heaven. But in a sense... It doesn't really matter unless you're making an impact on the people at home. One in particular, I remember doing a story about the Middle East and we were in Israel and um, <clears throat> it was it must have been early 1980s and, uh, and Lebanon had exploded and, uh, and Israel was basically in, uh, you know, under constant threat at that stage. And, um, and we went to do a story, well, a really simple story with an Israeli family and a, a Palestinian family in, um, in Jerusalem. And, uh, and the Palestinian family, had owned, Palestinian family had owned property there for centuries. And, uh, and when the, uh, the Jews came in when Israel was established as a, as a nation, um, that land was taken. Suddenly I found that we had an audience of several million people, you know, two families telling their story of what they'd gained and what they'd lost and how the, the, mm. the war, why the war was happening in Israel. Um, we got an enormous number of letters and people were seeing it for the first time. It was just, I thought, the fantastic thing that commercial television can do um, and um, and does, and certainly 60 Minutes did in those early days. It, you know, here we're, this war had been going on at that stage for 30 years, um, but um, but people were seeing it for the first time through the eyes of human beings rather than politicians and, and uh, military men, etc. And I thought that was probably one of the most that reminded me that, hang on, we're not we're not just sort of talking to an abyss. We're not talking to an empty space. Here. We're talking to people who listen to what is being said. So it was just I thought that was really for me it was a revelation. I thought, wow, hang on, yeah. And it is just that power of humanising yeah, an issue, making it yeah. about people. Yeah. The the job did have its dangerous components to it, and there is a, a fabulous story which I'm going to get you to confirm or deny that the uh, the head of nine at the time, Sam Chisholm, promised your wife die uh, that if you did die, pun unintended, <laughs> he would pay die. <laughs> $1.2 million. Yeah, no, it was a million dollars, but... Um, oh, you got shortchanged. Yeah, she shortchanged. You know? Shortchanged. Yeah, she got shortchanged, story of her life. But um, uh, no, I'd been to um, I'd been to the Middle East. I'd been, and we had, we're in Beirut, and uh, in Beirut, uh, when the Civil War was was going at that stage, and, and very heavy, uh, the American embassy had been blown up, and um, and we were fired at when we were at the American base, and then on the way back to, on the way out that particular night, um, we'd, um, uh, we were standing at the checkpoint. We had two taxis all, all together, four of us from 60 Minutes, and uh, there was a woman standing, a, a refugee, the refugee camp was just nearby, and a woman was standing nearby, and uh, she had all the goods and chattels on her head. She was standing on a median strip in the middle mm. of this. Uh, we were about one kilometre from the airport and a checkpoint. Um, and uh, and the shelling started and uh, the woman was directly hit. She was hit by one of these shells. She was there one minute. The next she was in a thousand pieces uh, scattered around. It was just as close as that. And uh, and the, the guard at the checkpoint said, go, 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 and just let us go. And we went and we, uh, we were at the airport. We watched this, uh, just just the firing, the shells going from one side of the valley to the other as the various, the, the militia groups were fighting against each other. And uh, at that particular time, we got out that night and, um, and we'd been in South 
Saudi Arabia b- before that and uh, on the same trip. Um, and on the same trip, we were in Northern Ireland as, again, and Northern Ireland was probably uh, the scariest place ever uh, was ever in during those times of the Troubles. And uh, and so I had three of those big stories and I came back and Chisholm invited me up for a scotch one Friday night and said, asked me how it was and et cetera. And I told him uh, in, in essence what it was. It was uh, it was fairly uh, exciting. And um, and so he said, well, you know, let me let me just tell you, that's what he said, you know, if anything ever happens to you, happens to you God forbid, um, uh, you know, I promise you that uh, that I'll, I'll give Diana a million dollars. Now, a million dollars is and was an extraordinary amount of money and, um, and I couldn't quite believe it and he sort of shook hands there was no contract, but I had not a skerrick of doubt that he would have paid it had I mm. been knocked off somewhere. What are the images that stay with you that you haven't been able to shake? Um, I think Arche and the tsunami um, was. Um, I went up to Arche for uh, when I was uh, on sixty on a current affair, and we took the program up there for a week. And that's there were two hundred thousand people killed on in that particular natural disaster. That was probably the worst thing I ever saw in my life. And these were men, women, children, um, and old people, and etc. Um, and we were you were conscious that these poor people had lost everything. And we'd go to uh, you know just go to in doing stories up there. We'd go into a house and they'd welcome us in and, and the man would be sweeping the mud away from the house and I'd think, well, he must be, and he'd smile and, and greet us and uh, and and then I'd, I'd say, well, you know, do, I would think he was lucky um, that maybe he'd missed out and then he'd tell me he'd lost his wife and his children and his sister and his brother and et cetera and yet he was still welcoming and trying to give us rice and trying to give us this sort of human dignity um, that was, and, and generosity that, that just completely floored me. In your on-camera career, uh, I'm not going to read out the grand total list of famous people you, you've interviewed, but, you know, to take a few, Elton John, uh, Tom Cruise, Jennifer Lopez, the list goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. What I'm fascinated about is who were the surprises? Wow, lots of surprises. Um, Paul Hogan said to me once that um, on air, um, he was there promoting one of his lesser films. Um, <laughs> he said, look, I wouldn't be talking to you if I didn't have something to flog. Yeah, which is so true of but it's so true of everybody. And so I think rather than, there were very few people amongst those that I developed relationships with. Michael Crawford, the fan of the opera, was one uh, I, whom I did, uh, and some of the sports men and women. Um, Kathy Freeman, I got really close to. I interviewed her a number of times, and she's a, a wonderful, wonderful Australian. Um, but um, Generally, I saw my job as, look, they're here to flog something. They've got a record or a show or a film or a book, um, and they really don't really want to know me. So I'll read the book and I'll pay them that respect and uh, and I'll do as good an interview and I'll, I'll be sensible about it. Um, and if I can make their life a little uh, less painful um, and less tedious, then that's what I do. And so, you know, I did an interview with Michael Johnson, the uh, probably the greatest 400-metre runner of all time, who was a, a pig of a man. And... Uh, as it turned out, and uh, and I was doing a sixty-minute story with him, and uh, and he, it was a day in the life of, and he'd won a gold medal in Sydney at the four hundred, and then he won the four by four hundred with a relay team, and he'd won uh, a goal, a couple of gold medals in the previous Olympics in Atlanta, and um, I had this huge respect for him as an athlete, and uh, he didn't want to be there. And so I, um, I said, look, you know, I'll try. I know this is sort of boring, but uh, I said I'll try and make it as, uh, as least boring as possible. And I said, you know, I just want to talk about you. I want to talk about Kathy Freeman. I want to talk about the Sydney Olympics. And he said, 
I couldn't give an F about uh, talking about me. I've talked about me. I couldn't give an F about Cathy Freeman. I couldn't give an F about uh, the City Olympics. And I said, well, it's going to be a good day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a good day. And the one thing he didn't want to talk about was drugs, which is what the Americans had been, uh, you know, I think five American athletes had been sent home from Sydney because of drugs. And, uh, and so I was determined to talk about drugs. And that ended the interview when I did the... But it was one of those where, you know, I was conscious he didn't want to be there. Did you at least get a good walkout? I got a great walkout. And he stood above me, actually, when I asked him several times about, they said, please don't ask questions about the drugs. And I said, you know, I have to ask. Yeah, it's that your was, job. That was Come the on. story. And uh, anyway, so I did. And and he got upset and uh, he stood up and, and and I thought he sort of started to raise his fist. Uh, and uh, and he was a big, strong um, human being. And, um, and I thought, um, we had three cameras. And I thought, Please hit me. Yeah. But don't hit me hard. Yeah. <laughs> hit me hard me enough to make week. a great promo, but that, not yeah, so hard that the damage is irreparable. Absolutely. <laughs> Three cameras would have covered it all, but uh, he didn't. He just sort of stormed out and uh, never to be seen again. Yeah. If you have a conversation, if someone can say, you know, what used to amaze me about midday, for example, mm. about television interviews is that I could be sitting with you and you could be a superstar. Um, Let's then, assume that I am for arguments. Uh, that's right. <laughs> as, as you are. Um, then... Um, then uh, you don't have to tell stories about um, your, your, uh, your terrible childhood or about your father or whatever. Um, and yet Pete would start to, again, if you ask the questions right, and again, if they trust you that you've done this, um, they start to open up. And I, I many times in my life have sat there thinking, why are you telling me this? You know, why are you actually being this open, this honest? And it becomes the camera almost, or the microphone, almost becomes a, a therapeutic device. It becomes something by which, um, you know, people suddenly feel the need to talk. Ray's connection with many people, from movie superstars to everyday Australians, it made him a household name. Something that you can imagine, a young Raymond Grace growing up in temporary housing commission homes could never have imagined would happen. But his fame also meant that another memory from the past would come calling. I got a call from um, uh, the gatehouse say, uh, saying that, um, that um, a bloke was down there and he, was, he said he was my father. And I'd not, you know, I'd not seen my father since we left, well, you know, 30 years earlier, maybe almost 30 years earlier. And, um, and I said, no, just tell him I'm not available. And, uh, and they, so they told him that. And uh, when I was leaving, I sort of stopped and talked to the, the guards at the front. And um, they said, oh, no, he was here. He said he was your father. And he's, they said he was, we think he was sort of half drunk uh, at the time, which, uh, which is interesting. Um, and I sort of left it at that. Um, I thought that at this stage, um, you know, it was almost like rubbing in my mother's face. If I renewed a, 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 a relationship, I had simply told kids when I was at school that he had died in a car accident. Um, and effectively he had. And, uh, and I thought, no. You know, it's, the caravan's passed on. It's not time to, uh, to resume a relationship now. You know, after I'm uh, reasonably successful, I've grown up and, uh, and yeah. all the problems. My mother had dealt with all the, you know, the growing up problems. And so I thought, no, you know, if my mother hadn't been there, I might have talked to him. And, uh, and I just really, it was out of, uh, out of uh, uh, you know, concern for my mother that I didn't suddenly resume a relationship that had broken down 30 years earlier. Your mother passed away in the 90s, really at the, uh, what many people would regard as the height of your fame. And I'm wondering, after all these years now, how much DNA of, of Mary's personality is still sitting here in front of me now? How much of her is in you? 
Oh, I, I can only, I mean, scientifically there's heaps, um, obviously, um, as it w- is with my father. Um, uh, that's there. But I mean, I remember being with mum once in the, near Central, uh, when before, before we split. And, um, uh, and I was, uh, we w- went across the park at Central in Sydney and, uh, and there was a, a bloke who came up and asked for some money. And mum was there with a handbag and a hat and, uh, and, and I was there in probably school clothes. But, um, mum sort of stopped and went to a purse and mum had nothing and she gave him, uh, you know, five pence or something like that in those days. Um, and as he said, thank you, ma'am, and he went away. And you didn't see many beggars in Australia in those days that I remember. And she said, uh, as we walked away, like a lesson from your parent, and she said, now, you know, you must all, if someone comes and asks you for money, you must always give it to them because it's, she thought it was somewhat demeaning to have to ask for money, and et cetera. And she said, you must always give it. It's one of those things where I say, oh, I'd walk, I'd walk past somewhere and, um, you know, and say, no, no, not. And then I'd get five pounds paces past them and say, oh, hang on, where's mum? So I'd go back and give them something. I, I, I do uh, by nature. But So it's those things that it's it's all the things, but I think everyone could say the same thing, that your version of little things that we don't notice, only when you become a parent as you are now, that you you realise this extraordinary influence that you have on your children, yeah. whether you mean to or not. And it's it can obviously affect us in terms of our attitudes towards race and attitudes towards women, I think. I did want to ask you about your relationship to another woman, a Camilla Roy woman by the name of Bertha, because a few years ago you discovered that you had uh, Indigenous heritage, and I'm fascinated to know how that came about. My sister had done, my sister Kay, um, who was a middle sister, she had done some family history, and um, and she discovered that there was this woman, Bertha, who'd, uh, who was an Aboriginal woman, um, who was seen to be somehow a member of the family. And, uh, and then we, we tr- it turned out that she'd had two children with um, my great-great-grandfather, whose name was William Lamy, Bill Lamy. He was sent out from Ireland um, on a, as a He'd, uh, he'd robbed a, uh, an Irish priest, uh, an Anglican, of, mm. uh, of 10 quid and was sent out to Australia um, for life. And, uh, and so he subsequently became a free man and, uh, and lived up there as a shepherd. But he had two children with this one woman, this Bertha, who t- ended up being um, a, a bit of a princess, not a, almost a queen of the Camilleroy people up there. She lived to 104. And, uh, and so my great great-grandfather would have been uh, living with this woman. He um, he died in 1851. In 1850, he did his will. And uh, he had put in the uh, comment there that he, he left, and he'd made a fair bit of money at this stage, and he had a property um, and uh, with uh, about 400 head of cattle and 50 head of horse, which was made him reasonably wealthy. And he said in the will, um, I leave all my goods and chattels to my beloved children. Now, these beloved children were, in fact, what was disparagingly called half-caste at that stage because they were had had a black mum and a white dad. And, um, and yet, this is clearly a political statement. His Irish-English mates at the time who were uh, involved in things like the Mole Creek Massacre and who were actually wiping out these savages who were up there um, would have been saying to him, we've got to get rid of them, it's either them or us, which is sort of attitude of this frontier mm. violence that we now acknowledge, but we used to put under the blanket. Um, for, for William Lamy to have actually stated on a document, you know, I leave all my goods and chattels to my beloved children was a statement of support and, you know, obviously love for them. So he went up and he'd already been up in my estimation anyway because he'd, uh, he'd been quite a uh, quite a rebel in Ireland, um, um, and I asked my mother about it, and uh, and she was the least racist person that I'd ever met. I mean, she um, uh, 
uh, I never heard her utter a racist word in her life. And uh, so I said, you know, why didn't you tell us about this? And she said, oh, it didn't matter. Now, it did matter. Um, it did matter because, you know, if you're working class Australian suspecting the bush, um, the last thing you needed was the tag of also being Indigenous because that, uh, you know, the, the blackfellas lived on the other side of the river and they lived down in the camps, etc. and they were hunted out of town when it got dark in places like Gunnedah. That was sort of where I was curious to go because I was like, how do you relate to it now, given it was a, a, a discovery that happened later in life? I mean, do, how do you relate to, I guess, your Aboriginal heritage at the oh, moment? Oh, no, I'm very proud of it, as I'm very proud of my Irish heritage. Um, but um, I'm one sixteenth Aboriginal, uh, as I say, I'm extremely proud. Um, and I, oddly enough, had been involved since I've started journalism, and especially in Western Australia when I first I went there, as I say, when I was first graded in the ABC. And, uh, and I did some stories there about, um, you know, about the racism. I couldn't believe it. Coming out of country New South Wales, which was certainly racist, um, there's no question of that as I grew up in terms of blackfellas and whitefellas, go to Western Australia or go to Queensland and it's apartheid. It was absolutely separate peoples. And, uh, you know, there were blackfellas in, in Mika Thara where I first went. Um, there was one blackfella pub and the other two pubs were for whitefellas and never the twain should meet, um, etc. And, you know, it was just, I hadn't seen that sort of uh, apartheid um, as in South Africa in Australia. And I was ashamed uh, of what was happening in my country, that it existed. Um, and then I went to America and then I, and I was there at the, at the civil rights movement and I was there in the you know, late 60s, in the 70s when, uh, when civil rights uh, really broke out and, when, and did lots of stuff with the Black Panthers and people like that. So I became aware of the you know, Black Lives Matter, if you want to use that phrase, um, and, and far more than I'd ever been as a, a young Australian. And so when I came back um, in 60 Minutes and so on, I, I was deeply involved in the – I got – I was um, – uh, Appointed to the Reconciliation Council by um, the Hawke government initially as the uh, sort of token journalist. Um, so I was involved in that before I discovered I had Aboriginal heritage. And, uh, and that was simply, and the blackfellas said to me when I, you know, I did a, a big piece for the Women's Weekly about my connection and um, told some of those stories and they said, oh, we knew. <laughs> it was always, how the bloody hell did you know? How did you know what I didn't know? Oh, we just knew it was that sort of connection. There is this uh, particularly amazing quote in the Australian Media Hall of Fame and it goes like this. If Ray Martin says it is, so it is. Now, for a journalist to engender that level of trust these days is, well, it's almost impossible. I mean, in the age of fake news and misinformation. So where does Ray see the responsibility of news media in 2020? Well, it was always regarded just slightly above used car salesmen mm. and below policemen. Um, it was always, it was never uh, top of the tree, uh, along with, uh, you know, with uh, lawyers and doctors. Um, so we kid ourselves that we think journalists have been respected or liked. Um, because we're shit stirrers, mm. to use the phrase, um, that upsets people. Um, I think today is, um, you know, journalists tend to be more better qualified than they were when I was there. Um, ABC would only uh, select you if you had a degree at that stage, but um, and newspapers didn't, so uh, you almost didn't need education to be a journalist And when I first started. Um, today you've, you know, you're flat out getting if you've got a PhD. Um, <laughs> whether they're as worldly, probably not. Um, um, but, but, but so what do I think in, in terms of it? It's, I think um, social media is a beast. Yeah. Um, 
that we can't control. Um, and we see with the sort of stuff that, stuff that Donald Trump does um, how vile it can be um, and how um, uh, yeah, there's, no, there's no check of it. Um, but it, on the same breath, it allows uh, people to do reporting that um, uh, at least has set off lots of stories um, because people do notice things and they report them. And in the past, no one's bothered to follow them up today. Photographs that are, that are taken of uh, extraordinary events, you know, such as Black, Black Lives Matter, such as the riots in America where you see the police brutality and thuggery, um, that wouldn't have happened in my day. It would have been just journalists reporting it, perhaps without the sort of pictures that you see today, the video stuff that people whip out their phone and take. So I think there's some value in, in popular press, um, if that's what social media is. Um, I think there's real value in everyone having a voice. Um, I think the voices just need to be uh, at least um, uh, go through some sort of sieve or they'd at least they need to be censored a bit at least, uh, you know, rather than people saying the sort of lies that, that the Donald Trumps of the world say and, and lesser people. Um, the days of being able to, you know, go to New York and, and you know, uh, investigate a story, I think they've gone because instant news requires the poor journalists who are there for, uh, from Australia to, um, to do radio, television, podcasts, um, you know, social media. There's no time to stop and really um, understand it. You've got to be adept enough to get it on the run, which is what they're doing. And I think that can be that can be a problem. Um, but I think, you know, I, what do I do? I set out to, I, I set out to tell stories um, and that's what I still love doing. Um, in journalism. Um, at the same time, uh, the reason I don't think I ever thought about doing talkback radio seriously is that I'm not convinced that, I, that I'm that i right. I'm not convinced that I, my opinion on something is right. Um, so I do tend, as a journalist, tend to like the idea of not balance because some things are, there's no, there's no balance to uh, Black Lives Matter. There's simply, there's no balance to the treatment of Aboriginal people in Australia. It's simply been wrong. It's been totally mm. unbalanced. So there's, you can't say. On the other hand, you know we uh, we looked after uh, Aboriginal people in the in the frontiers of Australia. Well, no, we didn't. We killed them. We just we killed them and isolated them, and we, it was a terrible uh, display. Uh, and so, don't try and balance that. Saying, well, you know, settlers were uh, were hard done by, or they you know they had to survive, or whatever it might be. You know, what we did was shameful. Um, and so, I think journalism isn't about balance in the sense you don't. There's some stories that are simply black and white. There's no grey areas about them. And so, I think journalism should say that I don't want people to. Know how what I think on issues. If if they know what I think, well then I've I've betrayed my game. My job is not to put my opinion up. My job is because I'm not a talkback radio host. My job is to ask the questions and tell the story. The biggest crime you can commit as a journalist is to be boring, um, or, or, or is to be worthy. You yes. know, to, to be worthy, which is so much of you know what ABC was in the old days, um, rather than be true. Your f- self-effacing nature will fundamentally. Uh reject the premise of this question, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Go for it. (laughs) Why do you think you have managed to have such a long-lasting connection with the Australian public? Um, It's in my DNA. Um, I I am... I wonder whether I would have been the same had I come out of a a privileged existence. Um, I'm not sure. And yet people like... You know, there, there, there are people who come out of privilege who have a heart and have a soul... Generally, I don't think they do. Generally, I think. <laughs> wow, there's a bold. <laughs> yeah, bold generally, call. I don't think they do. I mean, if you if you believe you're born to rule, um, yeah. then um, then I think your attitude is very different. Um, 
Um, so I think I, I've asked that question, as I say, about privilege, um, whether I would have had the same attitudes towards... I tend to be... Uh, I support unions, I support underdogs, I support um, the down-and-out far more before I support someone who's made it. Um, that's just in my nature. Um, but similarly, I support people who succeed um, out of their own energies and their own get-up-and-go. I mean, uh, there's a great, great man named... Alex Campbell, who was the last man on Gallipoli, and uh, he died at 106. I did a couple of things with him, and he was a water boy at Gallipoli, and uh, and he somehow survived, and he got to 106, and um, uh, and I interviewed him as he was. We did some research, and if you t- took the Turks and the Brits and the French and the Indians and, and the Germans all on Gallipoli Peninsula, there were about a million men there, and uh, and he was the last one surviving we could find. And uh, and I told him this, and he said, "Oh, oh gosh," he said, oh, "That's terrible, that sort of stuff." But he was. He, he, I took my, my son down, who was eleven at the time, and we would for the interview, and he met him, and I thought, you know, you, you need to meet this hero. This bloke was a was a nobody in the war, and yet he was a wonderful man. And um, so anyway, see, uh, we were packing up the lights at his house after we did the interview and he'd barely, uh, I got I got one word answers almost from him all the way through because he was so old and he was uh, he was so weary. As we unpacked the lights, Luke, my son, was off to one side uh, and I noticed Alex talking to Luke, Luke and, uh, and I thought, hang on, you know, I didn't get that. What's he, he's talking <laughs> to my 11-year-old son. So we, anyway, we packed up, we jumped in the plane and we're coming back to Sydney and I said uh, to Luke when we were coming back at one point, I said, what did Mr Campbell say to you? And he said, oh, he just talked to me about the war. And, and I'd seen him talking. <laughs> and I'm bloody hell. And um, oh, so the I, camera's rolling on that. Yeah. So I said, so what did he say? He said, um, I asked him what it was like. And, he, and anyway, he, Mr. Campbell had said uh, that it was terrible and, you know, he was against wars and you should never go to war. And then I said, so what else did he say? He said, he said to me, um, son, can I give you some advice? And, uh, and my son just said, yes, Mr. Campbell. And, uh, and he said, uh, have a go. <laughs> have a go. And I think that's probably it, that in terms of, uh, you know, the people I have most respect for are those who have a go, even and not the people who are the most brilliant or the people who are most successful, the people who have a go. So if Ray Martin were to run into young Raymond Grace at a Rabbitohs game at the age of 10 or 11, yep. what would you want young Raymond Grace to know about what his future was going to entail? What would you arm him with for his future? Apart from have a go, um, <laughs> yeah. I'd certainly say uh, to anybody, have a go, uh, male or female. Um, it's it's, it's a famous bit of graffiti I once saw um, in London of uh, life's not a dress rehearsal. Um, it's not a dress rehearsal. You've got to actually have a go and you've got to, you don't get a second chance at this. You have your second chance at, at life, if you like, at the very thing. So you can, you can fall over and, 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 and bloody your nose and get up and go on with something. But, uh, uh, but you don't, you know, we don't come back in this world again. And so I think that if you, uh, if you don't have a go, if you don't do the things you want to do, if you don't think, do things that please you uh, within reason, um, then I think you you're probably uh, you know not much about uh, above a vegetable. You probably uh, ought to be in the garden rather than on the street. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the sound of a man having a go. Huge thank you to Ray Martin for his time, and of course, thank you to you for connecting with and listening to this podcast. Uh, if you're hearing this for the first time, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast or any of your favourite podcast apps. Each episode, we have unique stories of people, some famous, some not so famous, connecting with the most pivotal moment of their lives. And if you like the show, uh, you can leave a review. Uh, it's helpful. It means other people can find it. 
My name has been Mark Fennell and thank you for joining us for Hey Guess What, which is presented by Telstra, and I will catch you next time.